Pride Institute is an LGBTQ-specific treatment center for substance use disorder and addiction. Pride was first opened in 1986 as a direct response to the HIV-AIDS pandemic. We provide care to adults 18-plus in residential and outpatient settings. I'm Luke. And I'm Kaylee. And together, we are the co-hosts of the Proud Voices podcast for Pride Institute. All right. Hey, everyone. Today we are here with Ross. Ross, thanks for mu- so much for joining us today. It's good to be here. Yeah. So I'll just start it off like I do every other time. Uh, Ross, will you just let us know what led you to Pride's Doors initially? So it's actually a funny slash not funny story um, because I was like bottoming out in New York and um I mean, that's when I when I get better, not because like I have a white light moment. It's like literally like I run a ran out of options. You know, the the boyfriend who I thought I was going to be with the rest of my life was like, and I'm done with this. And he'd been, you know, paying the rent and taking care of me for a long time. And I literally didn't know what I was going to do with myself. And so I was like, well, I guess it's time to get sober. And I um had zero dollars and I knocked on a drug dealer's door and said, you owe me, (laughs) Um, I need to go to treatment. And so we started looking for treatment centers and I called and did an intake and I was very excited because like the Pride Institute in New Jersey is like 20 minutes away. And I did this whole conversation with, I think it was Anne back then in intake. Still um, there. Oh my gosh, seriously? (laughs) 18 years later, yeah, or whatever it is. (laughs) And then they said, well, um, when can you get a flight to Minneapolis? I didn't realize that I'd been talking to the uh, to the intake department in Minneapolis. And I was feeling lazy. And rather than like doing another intake, I just got a plane ticket and came to Minneapolis from New York. And that's how I ended up there for, oh, it was probably three or four weeks of treatment. And then another probably ooh, another four or five weeks of like aftercare there. So... I, one thing that stuck out to me early on in your story, you went to a drug dealer and your drug dealer helped you find treatment. Well, he paid for my airline ticket. I sort of saw it as being like, when you go to subway enough times, you get, you know, (laughs) like they punch your card and at the end, like you get a free, I mean, I can't think of how much money this person had earned you know from me and we were also friendly i was like i need i really need help right now and i don't know anybody else who could like afford this or do this and he flew me to he flew me to minneapolis uh so yeah so when you stepped off the plane what was your experience like of minnesota obviously you were in treatment but it was vastly different from you know this lifestyle over here versus where you're from I remember pulling up at Pride. Now they sent, I think we called it the druggy buggy mm-hmm. back then, which is like, oh, no. like the van came to yep. pick me up. And I mean, I was doing, I was doing drugs in like in the van. I had like made sure I had enough to get me to Pride. And then like I got there and I slept it off for like three days mm-hmm. before they woke me up or like, you need to get your ass to group. Mm-hmm. Um, but coming from like New York City and just like that pace to finding myself sort of secluded. And I remember like one of the first people I met there was a deer, like, you know, sitting outside and like, it, like it just felt very 
very significant just like all of a sudden like the din of the, like of the city of the noise of the pace all of that just um got real quiet real quick and it became very sort of easy to focus on recovery so what part of the city did you live in in new york so i was sort of like moving up the west side as they were gentrifying like i lived in the west village and then chelsea and then hell's kitchen which while i was there suddenly became clinton it was sort of this mass gentrification where you would like look out the window you'd see a crack house and like you'd go get a drink you'd come back it would be a starbucks like <laughs> that same that same week um so it's sort of like the gays were moving further and further uptown like sort of like beautifying these neighborhoods pricing them up and then um moving out yeah well and i know hell's kitchen is like pretty much the gay mecca of new york city now yeah i mean probably in the way that like the west village was mm-hmm. in you know early early on but there's huge community there with like theater people and restaurant people I and mean, it's all happening right there yeah and so um forgive me if you've already covered this but what year did you make it to pride so i think that went there in fall of 2003 because okay. I remember I was there for Halloween. Oh, they, they shipped us out to some. We used to go to a meeting on Wednesday nights that was called the Gratitude Meeting, and we would call it the Grabadude Meeting. <laughs> and that meeting sponsored a Halloween party. So I remember being there for that, and then being back in Chicago by like New Year's. So it was like fall mm-hmm. of two thousand three. And would you say having like zero dollars in your bank account, was that like the minute where you were like, okay, I need treatment? Or were you kind of dabbling around with the idea of treatment prior? You know, I had done, I mean, I knew that there was a shelf life on my ability to maintain. Um, I just couldn't stop. Like I couldn't in my rational mind, like bring myself to stop. I was regularly like having these, oh my God, it happened again. You know, I I thought I was done and here I am again at the end of the month with like no rent or I'm sick again or I've slept through another like family event or something where it's just like I wasn't like free and easy. Like I had a lot of shame about about my using and my behavior and I tried and tried and tried. And then just knowing that this relationship was ending and couldn't visualize like what the next step was. I mean, I really just, it was truly bottoming out where I knew like I needed help. Like I needed, I needed to change everything. Yeah. And so I think a lot of people experience that. And I think especially in our community, because so much of our culture revolves around drinking, drugs, alcohol, and that's like um, hand in hand with socializing. Was that your experience? I mean, for me, by the end, I mean, it was math. And so it was not, I mean, it was social, but I was like a sex tweaker. Mm-hmm. So it was the, you know, the P and P scene, which can feel social, you know, because it can feel so intense and you can in the moment feel like you're really making intense, spiritual, intense, physical connections. Um, and you know, I remember speaking with a counselor and like having this idea in my head, like, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself if I'm sober because everybody does meth. And she was like, time out. That's not true. 
That's not not true. It gave me some statistics about like meth usage in our community. Um, But I really just thought like a very warped sense of like, just because I was so centered in it. I mean, what was missing is everybody that I know and I'm hanging out with is doing meth. And so, um, you know, building, you know, just getting reference. So like sober reference at Pride of like talking to other queer people um, while sober was like mind blowing to me in the moment. Oh, totally. Can you expand on the spiritual aspects of meth use? Because I think that's always fascinating is people who don't or aren't involved with recovery, they just look at it all as bad, bad, bad. But there are benefits to bring drugs. And I think that it's really important for people seeking sobriety to, I guess, realize why they started using it in the first place. I mean, that's such a great point, Luke, because I think that part of the recovery journey sometimes is we're told, like, just remember the bad, just remember the bad. But like, we didn't start doing drugs because we were having a bad time. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't continue using drugs. Like, there was something liberating and freeing, you know, being HIV positive and in an era where disclosure about HIV was such a continuous stressor and place of shame and rejection, you know, that the PNP, like I, I hate to use the word community, but population maybe, like it was just a place where that was kind of common ground and um, there wasn't shame around that. Or I wasn't experiencing shame there. And I was experiencing like a sexual freedom. And for me, as like a demisexual, that, you know, connection is important. You know, people do it all different ways. But for me, like I wanted to have that intense connection and like everything is ramped up on meth. You throw ecstasy on top of it or you throw, you know, like you're having a full body experience and it feels like, you're just bonding so intensely, you know, then the drugs wear off and it's like, it's not real or you move on because you want that high again, that connection becomes part of the high. You know, that's why, I mean, I think that's why I relapsed when I came out of pride initially, because I didn't realize like how tightly wired still my sexuality and like my desire for that kind of intensity was just wired to my, to my drug usage still. Mm. So interesting. A couple of things I heard. Um, will you just define what PNP is for those who don't know? Yeah. Party and play, okay. which is like, we're going to do drugs together and then we're going to have sex. It's often like group settings. Um, yeah. In PNP, I think in, in, in Europe, they would call it chem sex. Mm-hmm. You know, so yep. I mean, that, I think that's the more generic sort of term for it. I think uh, gay men, it tends to be known as like PNP or party and play. And this was back in an era like where you could put in your profile on Manhunt, um, mm-hmm. you know, hot so-and-so wants PNP. Like you could just be like out. There was no like secret lettering and it was like very out there before, mm-hmm. you know, the carriers of those services started clamping down on what you could say and what you couldn't say. Right. And then you mentioned that you're demisexual. Will you just expand on what that looks like for you? I don't know if we've had anyone that identifies um, as a demisexual on our show before. So for me, um, so it's interesting because I think it's considered a subset of like asexuality, but that doesn't resonate for me. It just means that sex for me 
without some sort of emotional connection just doesn't doesn't compute like and it doesn't mean that it has to be a boyfriend or it has to be like a love connection but without like there's not a sexual act that I want so bad to happen that I want it to happen without somebody that I feel some sort of connection with even if it's just once you know mm-hmm. but it you know I want to feel a connection and then let the physical grow out of that and so i don't understand the language i think demi means half and i don't feel half sexual (laughs) but um it's a new sort of identity that i'm trying on and feels very comfortable as you know i'm I'm glad to have found language Mm -hmm. for it because it's something i've always felt and sometimes i've felt um disconnected but from some of my peers who just want to get this or that done and can get it done and be like great for me, it can be sometimes more complicated because, you know, I need to make a connection or I need to feel, need to have some sort of emotional experience around it. Yeah. And that's so fascinating. And I wonder, do you think that that has to do with your PNP days? Do you think that because, because I feel like when I listen to No, I think it's reverse. Yeah. I think it was an identity that I didn't have words for. And this helped me have that, that intense emotional experience that I wanted as well, because my behavior wasn't any different then. So I think it's actually the opposite of that, that this allowed me and also ramped people up emotionally. And that hunger to connect was kind of like currency, at least in the circles that I was traveling in. That's really fascinating because that goes hand in hand with what you were talking about with the spirituality components, because I think people, again, have this idea that chemsex, PNP, it's all just extraordinarily transactional. And what you're saying is, is it's like such a heightened emotional experience. Well, I want to clarify that that's for me, you know, mm-hmm. that, that that is my experience in there. Mm-hmm. And I don't profess it to be like the way, but I mean, we all do it. I think we're all itching to have like some need met. And for some people, it might just be purely physical and give them permission to do that and march into it and do that thing like without shame. Um, for me, you know, it was more about, again, um, heightening, heightening all the energy and feeling like a real, real connection to somebody. But that also came with a lot of pain because it rarely panned out to anything. You know, it was always sort of temporary and you get in that cycle of always being disappointed or disconnecting. Yeah. And so when you came to Pride... What I guess was like the big takeaway for you? What was like your big light bulb moment where you didn't know something about yourself that you then found out? It's going to sound so like basic, Luke, but my experience there was just wow. Like I can, I was doing drugs 24 hours a day. You know, I was just using drugs 24 hours a day for days and days and days on end and then sleeping it off. So like I had just when people are like, well, what triggers are you to use? Like, I don't know. I'm just, I just use all the time. Like that's just, it's just maintenance at this point. So just waking up sober and not feeling sick or feeling the hunger um, or the ache or the obsession, like the obsession for me was just like lifted very quickly there. And just by connecting to the community there, like I was feeling genuine connection. Like I was surrounded by people who wanted to do better and with ideas of like wellness and like that just like fed my spirit. Um, And so just building 
sober reference. I mean, for somebody who can't string together 24 or 36 hours of sobriety and keep starting over, there's something about being at this place where like showing up your building days and building sober reference. And I, I use this term all the time. It's like, you're just getting, it's rewiring. Like your body is just having experiences and sobriety, the trips to Walmart, to the movies, um, watching people with more time there. Like I was just, uh, just the sense of possibility and a sense of hope around recovery that was profound for me while I was there. Just absolutely profound. Well, and rewiring is such a good term because you're not, it's not a different body. It's not a different brain. It's not a different mind. It's showing up to your life in a different attitude and in a different mental state. Yeah. Um, and watching, you know, there's a humility to it, like watching the people around you and being sort of like, you know, just seeing yourself in other people's stories or not seeing yourself, but sort of just take, it's just taking in so much information between like the clinical stuff that's coming at us about just understanding addiction and substance use and just the individual stories, like queer people and their stories. And, um, I mean, I, I hate to say, I mean, just really, there was a real sense of like family there of community and i went back to treatment like four years later and it was nothing like that it was just completely clinical like i had a very profound experience at pride and while i didn't stay sober immediately after when i think back to like where i got the meat like the actual like stuff it goes back to my experience at pride i had a little more research to do i don't think i understood the nature of like cunning, baffling, powerful of like, I really thought I was like good when I left there. So I left with kind of a false sense of security mm -hmm. and the whole idea of wired, like I was still wired for certain, you know, they say what's wired, what fires together, wires together and like sexually and connection wise, when I started to pursue that again, it was immediately like right back to old behavior. And it was another three years before I had like the grace of another sort of like bottoming out. And that was it then, you know, mm -hmm. I realized like, you can't just once I, I can't just once cause it puts me back in it again. Mm -hmm. Ross, how long did that process take that, uh, unwiring rewiring process for you? You mentioned you relapsed and went back to treatment. Uh, what kind of was your path? What did anything stick or was it just the process of never giving up? It's hard to quantify that, mm -hmm. you know, I think like, I, I'm sorry, like so much of this turns out to be about sex, this conversation, but, um, you know, having a, like a relationship in recovery where I could process sort of like sexual desire and kink sometimes, or, but like a sex positive open dialogue where, you know, sometimes in recovery, we're told just like, just don't think about it. Just don't do it. Just you know, that I can do whatever I want in recovery, I might just need to like lean into support, you know? And like, I couldn't be sort of kamikaze in my sexuality the way I had been before. And I had to start building sober reference and not having an expectation that it was going to be like meth sex, but sober. You know, I think that we think like you can do every, anything you did 
using sober, but like, it's just not going to be the same and sort of releasing that expectation. And, um, from the work of da- like the reading of David Fawcett, uh, who write uh, men, I think it's men, meth and sex was like really helpful for me. Trigger alert for some folks, if this makes it in, you know, it can be a, a slightly triggering read, but just understanding like the way that sex and meth are connected or they get connected and just, it takes time and process for those wirings to like uh, separate and have some freedom from that. And so how, how many years now have you been sober? Uh, it'll be 13 years in February, February 3rd, 13 oh, years. Congrats. Oh, thank yeah. you. Thank you. What are some tips and tricks that you can give other people out there to maintain long-term sobriety like that? Be of service, you know, like, like I find that it's hard to be super selfish and self-consumed when I am, you know, being of service to other people in recovery. You know, if we have, if we have been blessed with being able to have like longer term sobriety, like the old adage is that like we keep it by giving it away. And um, for me, that had meant like a lot of service in my community, um, like to individuals and sponsorship at the group level and then learning more about sort of like the service structure within 12 steps organizations and eventually realizing like, I want to be of service outside of just like my recovery. And I, you know, I'm, I'm about to be a therapist. So, you know, I am in my final throes of my master's in counseling psychology, but like just shifting some focus to helping others, gratitude, like it's hard to throw something away if you're actually practicing gratitude around it. I'm part of a circle that continues on a daily basis to like circulate gratitude lists to each other and remind each other how much is at stake. I have a buddy who, who sends this great list and it's, it's very sort of funny and all over the place. And he always ends it with, and these are a few things that I probably lose, you know, if I gave up my sobriety, if I relapsed today. And that's, I look, you know, that really just looking at my recovery and all this stuff I have, my dog, my job, my family, like a restored, like I really sit in like gratitude for that. You know, and it's not heady gratitude, but like the feeling of like, this is important stuff. And it was not easy to get back for the kind of drug addict that I was. Um, follow direction, you know, lots of people have done this before us, you know, follow direction and ask, ask a lot of people, get good people in your ear about recovery. Um, look for the, look for the similarities. I feel like I'm talking in bumper stickers now, but like, (laughs) I think the thing about the bumper stickers and recovery is so weird is because they can sound so trite, but every one of them is like shorthand for like this profound idea and if you can look at it like not as like oh my god one day at a time but really sit with what it means sort of spiritually to sit in what's my purpose today like i can't do anything other than like what is happening today and like if i'm if i'm like regretting my past or anxious about the future i don't get to do the things and be fully present in my life today like for me, and I am not religious at all, but like spiritual principles, I let spiritual principles guide me. Um, and I do the work around that. 
don't know. I feel like I'm all over the place. No, that's, that's great. I just, I know it seems like just this impossibly tall mountain for people to climb, like the minute they get out of treatment. And so I think all of those things of what you say, because, you know, I tend to be a little cynical in nature. So when I do hear little like hot terms, like one day at a time, or, you know, like live, laugh, love, I'm just like, <laughs> ugh, you know, but it, all of that matters so much. Yeah, I mean, the thing to do about those is ask somebody, like, what, you know, this thing, this bumper steer, like, what does it mean to you? You know, like, it seems trite to me. Like, if it feels trite, good. Say it and ask ask somebody, like, what does this mean to you? Is that something you actually, like, practice? Because I think we come in and we think, like, oh, these are just, like, silly things we say in a meeting. Like, everything we say in meetings, like, is for a reason. Like, it's really, like, they're, like, really important ideas. And we boil them down to these little these little sort of catchphrases. Mm -hmm. um, it's easy just to like say them and not think them, but to really let the weight of like what that means, you know, super, super important, powerful. Well, Ross, I think that's a good place to uh, put a pin in this conversation for now. I feel like we could talk all day with you and get new and little nuggets. Um, but congrats on your sobriety. Congrats on getting your master's. Um, it sounds like you're in a really good place. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Proud Voices. You can find us where you find all your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to follow and subscribe. We'll see you next time.